Again, so we're in Acts 16, verse 35, and the title of today's message is Provoked. Provoked. And I ask at the beginning here, what provokes you? What provokes you? What sets you off? You know, uh, I probably don't need to list things. You can probably think of something maybe this week that maybe even provokes you. But um, do you provoke others? Hopefully not in a bad way. Hopefully in a good way. But, you know, especially as parents, the Bible says that we're not to provoke our children. You know, the Bible explicitly warns we're not to, to do that, provoke them to wrath or discouragement in, six, in Ephesians 6, 4 and Colossians 3, 21. But it seems today that um, people are provoked by everything these days, that people are provoked by um, any little thing you say, whether it's uh, a political comment, whether it's not a political comment, whether it's a belief, whether it's... Um, Whatever it is that, that maybe isn't the status quo, or even if it is, it's pro- it provokes them to wrath, it provokes them to a riot, it provokes them to a lawsuit, it provokes them to maybe talk about you at work. I don't know. But um, it seems today that everyone is very sensitive and easily provoked by everything. But have you ever been so provoked by something that you had to take action? That you had to take action. Um, you know, maybe you saw a friend or a kid in trouble and you had to take action. Um, and, you know, maybe you had to get them out of the street. Hey, don't play in the street. Or maybe you saw a friend that was uh, in need and uh, needed someone to stand up for them and you stood up for them. Um, maybe it's something wrong that you see, but you need to do, do something about it. Or maybe it's just something as simple as a commercial on TV that that's it's disgusting and it provokes something in you and you change the channel. Or maybe it, it's the other way around. It provokes you to go buy whatever they're selling you. I don't know. We watched these funny videos of uh, <laughs> crazy infomercials the other day. But we're, today we're going to see that people are provoked um, in different ways by the gospel and by uh, the message of uh, Paul and Silas. But we've seen that Paul and Silas have been spreading the gospel. Remember that they were on their way to prayer, that they cast out a spirit of divination from the young girl, uh, that people lost their business because of this, and uh, that they began to get provoked all the way back then as well, where they rose up and they brought the Paul and Silas before the council and brought them into prison um, and beat them. And yet Paul and Silas kept praying, again, because these people lost their business because Paul and Silas cast a, a demon out of this girl. Uh, we saw that there was a miracle, that there was an earthquake, and that their chains were undone, and that no one left, and that the jailer and his house were saved. But again, this is starting something that I think continues through what we're going to read today, uh, where people were provoked, and it didn't calm down, it didn't settle down, it kept going. Um, but let's pick it up in Acts 16, verse 35, and uh, uh, we'll read... Two forty, and I'm in Second Samuel, so that's definitely not the right place. I was like, <laughs> we're starting in the middle of. <laughs> okay, let's see. Acts sixteen thirty five, and when it was day, the magistrates sent uh, the officers saying, "Let these men go." So again, they're in prison. There was an earthquake overnight. Now the morning has come. And verse thirty six. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, "The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace." But Paul said to them, They've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. You know, we see that the authorities basically after the earthquake had happened said, all right, we're going to let these guys go. 
but they don't even show up themselves. They're the ones who put them in prison, but they kind of send their little henchmen to do their, their bidding there. Uh, you know, basically it was probably even the same guys who beat them because the guys that they sent, the word for them means rod bearers. The guys who brought the punishment are probably like, hey, all right, we're going to set you go now. Get out of here in the middle of the night. People are distracted, or the morning rather. The earthquake happened. Just, just go and, you know, be on your business. But, uh, you know, what happened? Maybe it was a change of heart. Maybe the whole earthquake happened. And they realized, okay, people have probably going to forget about Paul and Silas right now. There was a big earthquake last night. You know, the news coverage is all about the earthquake now. No one cares about them. So let's just get them out of our hair and we don't have to worry about them anymore. But I love Paul's response. Paul's not like, yes, we're free from prison now. He was technically God freedom the night before. God brought the earthquake and undid the chains. And Paul could have left, but that was not... uh, Paul didn't seize on that opportunity. It wasn't what he was about. But Paul says, no way. You're not getting off the hook this easy. You guys put us in jail. We're Roman citizens, and you put us in jail legally. Imagine if you got arrested and they didn't read you your Miranda rights. That's what they have to do. You know, there's a, the due process of law as an American citizen that you get. And that's the same thing here as a Roman citizen. Paul's like, we're Romans. You're not allowed to do this. No way you're getting off the hook this easy. Um, and I love that about Paul that, you know, he was, he was going to... He was smart and he knew his legal rights, but he was going to stick it to them. And I think not in a sense to make a political statement, but in the sense where, you know, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, where these men were doing something wrong. And Paul wanted to confront them on it and say, hey, you're not getting away with this this easy. You guys are, are doing something that um, is wrong. And I think as believers, we should be that salt and light in the world. Now, I don't know that I would be the same way if I was in prison and beaten for the gospel and there's an earthquake. I probably would have. Hey, open door. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Let alone said, no, no, no. You come down here and set me free yourself. No way. No way. Uh, but Paul was uh, undoubtedly a much better man than I. But when the magistrates actually show up, um, you know, they have to, to not get away with letting someone else do their dirty work. Paul, you know, uh, pulls no punches here and makes them step up and, uh, and, and do what they need to do. You know, it's very much like the world to do someone, someone else to do your own dirty work. Um, you know, these people, you know, maybe you have a relationship and you break up by a text message because you don't want to do it in person or you had to pass a note when you were little or send a passive aggressive note on someone's car who parks wrong. You know, you don't want to do the dirty work yourself. You're going to leave the note here. Um, uh, but again, that's uh, just that's just the same way it is in the world today, that just as it was then, it is now people want to do what they want to do and when they want to do something shady even if they want to admit it's shady they just get someone else to do it for them uh you know but it's interesting when paul makes them face the music they're pleading with them to leave city like please we know we messed up we didn't realize you're roman citizens we're really afraid now paul's really shifted the tables on them and said hey please please just leave the city please just go please get out here you know we don't want to be in trouble with um the roman government you know again because the roman government had a, a, an iron fist where um, you know, they were going to come in and, and crack down on things that were going wrong. Um, but again, this isn't was really repentance either. The magistrates weren't really sorry for what they did. They just said, we don't want the consequence. You know, you think about uh, a politician or someone who gets caught doing something wrong. They're not really sorry for what they did wrong. They just don't want the consequence of it. Um, so what do Paul and Silas do? Um, they go back to Lydia's and they encourage their brethren there. They say, okay, we'll leave. But they go back and they encourage the church. 
and then they move on. You know, Paul doesn't go back into the city, and I find it interesting. You know, Paul has been beaten unto death and goes back into the city at, at times to preach the gospel. But here he says, "Okay, um, God's done His work here. It's time for us to move on." You know, the people um, aren't open to the gospel. The jailer got saved. His family got saved. His whole household got saved. All right, it's time to move on. It's time to go. Um, I think it's interesting that sometimes we just have to accept that, hey, the work here is done. Let's go on. It isn't, we didn't know what we were coming here for, and now we're here, and it's done, so we're going to move on. And, uh, and he does so. And again, you think of the scriptures about not casting uh, your pearl before swine. Um, you know that sometimes you give the gospel or you share part of your heart to someone, and they receive it, or they don't. And if they don't, and they're mocking it, well... Okay, it's time to, to shake the dust off your feet and continue on down the road. But let's pick it up in Acts uh, chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. And we'll stop there for right now. Thessalonica, uh, or Thessaloniki, as the city still exists today. Um, you know, you, you read the books, the, the letters to Thessalonians, that's where the city is. Um, but it still exists today. There were youth riots there a few years ago. It was part of the, the Greek financial crisis and the recession. People were rioting because there were no jobs and things. Uh, but it's interesting that the city still exists today. But in this city, unlike we just saw before, there was a synagogue. There was a synagogue here. There were enough Jewish men to start a synagogue. It was something that was going on. Um, and so Paul's custom was, was to go in and reason with them from the scriptures. Paul would show up in a city. He would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he would go there for a few weeks, and he would, you know, they had an opportunity to share the gospel, uh, share scriptures with each other. So he shared the gospel with them, and the message. And he and he wanted to reason with them, and to reason with them from the scriptures, which is interesting because the word reason is, uh, I'm going to butcher it because it's Greek, um, and I'm Irish, but it's dialogomai, basically where we get the word dialogue from, and it means to think different things with oneself, mingle thought with thought to ponder, resolve in mind, to converse, to discourse with one, to argue, to discuss. I don't know if you've ever discoursed with yourself about something. Uh, yesterday I was doing some maintenance on uh, Ashley's car, and I'm under there, and I'm probably getting tired from being on my back and breathing fumes and all stuff, but I was having a conversation with myself. Like, you know, I don't even remember what it was about, but it was about trying to get the tools on there and trying to figure out how to, part when it come off and trying to figure out how to get it off and back in there. Uh, and that's not quite what's going on here, but I was trying to figure out and come to a conclusion to something that I was presented with. And that's sort of what's going on here, this recently. You know, if you guys remember the, the Apple Think Different campaign, where I think it was mainly in the 90s, where they wanted you to think different, to reason, look at Apple and look at every other computer manufacturer and reason why you should go with Apple. And, you know, I'll give you reasons why not to. But the point was, consider, look at, and make a decision based on the evidence here. Um, you know, don't just think what you've always thought in a religious way, in a, a monotonous way. And to really, the idea is here to consider it, to argue it, to hash it out. And I think of verses like Isaiah 118 that says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
And Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. You know, that he would go there and share these things with people that they might reason through the scriptures. And as we'll see, come to faith that they wouldn't just check their intellect at the door, but that they would look at the scriptures and see what the scriptures really mean for what they mean. Um, and I think sometimes uh, just getting the thought out helps. You know, if you're ever going through a problem or a struggle and you sit down and you don't really know the answer to it and you're kind of confused and sometimes you just need to talk to someone about it, sometimes that reasoning out and hearing it out uh, helps there. Uh, but, you know, that, uh, you know, we always need to consider the facts. If you guys seen on TV lately this whole hubbub about finding a knife on O.J. Simpson's property and the guy kept it and now they're looking at it for DNA and everything, whatever the case may be. And I saw a clip of uh, one of the... Uh, uh, prosecutors, uh, Marsha Clark, and how she has this guilt because she believes he's guilty, but she wasn't able to bring it. And just this weight that's on her, that's apparently not on someone on someone else. Um, but again, we don't know, you know, that he was found innocent. So we, we have to go with that. But, um, you know, that there is these facts in this evidence and you have to reason it out based on what evidence and what you've seen. And she wasn't able to to get to the conclusion that he did it based on the evidence that was there. But that's what's, what Paul is doing here. He's laying out the evidence that's in the scriptures. He's saying, look at this first. Look at this first. Weigh this out. What do you think God really means about this to reveal to them that Jesus is the Messiah? And I believe that God desires reason with us. God desires to reason with us. And he gives us reasons to consider that. You know, we have creation. We have each other. We're made in God's image. We have natural law. But chiefly, we have the fact that Jesus came. He fulfilled these prophecies. He died on the cross, but that he rose again. And it says that uh, Paul explained it and demonstrated that. And I think that that's important, that not only did he explain it, but he demonstrated it. It wasn't just some abstract theory. It wasn't just uh, you know math on a chalkboard, but he applied it. He applied this out to them in front of them. I'm sure not only in life, but also in the way he brought the scriptures uh, to them. You know, to think about the word being um, something that you need to exercise, something that you need to be trained in, that we all need to be trained in, that we might be able to, when someone has a question, we might be able to answer and say, well, this is what the Bible says about this, and this is what it means, and this isn't, you know, this and that and this, and you put it together uh, like a, a skilled fighter or a skilled artist. But he says here um, that Christ had to suffer and raise from the dead. I think it's interesting because a lot of the Jews, especially uh, in Jesus' time, even the disciples for uh, most of the time, thought he was going to be this political leader, this guy who was going to come up and free them from Rome, um, that he was going to be a political figure for earthly justice. Uh, so suffering doesn't really necessarily tie in with that. But also he was uh, not a martyr for the troops to rally around, that Jesus not only suffered as the Messiah, but that he died. But that he didn't just stay dead, that he rose again. Because a martyr dies and stays dead. And then people go, oh, the martyr. And they go and they fight. And they, and they do their, uh, their battle over it. But instead that Jesus is a victorious king who defeated death. And that we must turn to. Um, uh, to escape uh, death, to escape consequence of sin, and really escape the oppression of the earth. That, you know, yes, Jesus in the end is a political figure. He's our king. Yes, Jesus in the end is, is someone that we will rally behind. You know, when Jesus comes back, he's going to have saints with them, and we're going to be riding on horses, and Jesus is going to come in and conquer, and one fell swoop, swoop, knock out um, the enemy permanently. Um, but that there is judgment to coming and that, that the scriptures point to all this happening, that the scriptures aren't so narrow-minded to think that Jesus is just going to be some elected official that's going to live for a little while and pass away and want we'll to find someone else, but instead that his kingdom um, is eternal. 
And it says that some Jews were persuaded that the Jews who were coming to the synagogue heard this, said, you know what? This makes a lot of sense. The scriptures do point this out. Again, remember, we don't have the quote-unquote New Testament. We just have the quote-unquote Old Testament of the, the Hebrew scriptures, which talk about the Messiah very clearly. And they came to faith. They said, wow, this makes sense. He really is the fulfillment of everything we've believed. But it says also that a great multitude of devout Greeks, that in this Greek territory, that people were coming to the synagogue who were Greeks, who recognized that this God is, is not like the gods of the Greeks. That there, we come to a Jewish temple because we know that the God of the Jews is real and he's not like Zeus and Apollos and all the other guys that, that our nation worships. Um, but they turn as well too, because again, I think maybe it was a little bit easier for the Greeks to turn because it wasn't something that maybe they were raised in. It wasn't their culture. It wasn't their heritage, but it was something as, as they being adults have spent their whole life living in an idolatrous society, found that the Jewish God was the God of reality and turned to him. And then when this guy Paul comes in and reveals a deeper truth to them about this God, they turn to him. And again, it's by the spirit, but I think that the God in his Holy Spirit will use reason with us. <coughs> says also that uh, not just a few leading women came to faith. And I think it's interesting that that's pointed out in a sense like a separate bullet point. Uh, because again, uh, uh, you know, women could do different things in their society, but um, they didn't have equal rights. I mean, yeah, we still have things like the glass ceiling and we have uh, feminism and things like that in our society where we're fighting for uh, equal rights. But I think our society is much farther along than these were, where women really were oppressed. So I think it's interesting on top of that, that these men, these women who were leading, whether it's in the synagogue or whether it's in the, the town or the society, also came to faith. And just how important it was that Luke said, this is an important note, I'm going to write this down, that there is value and, and worth um, to a woman. And we see that in the scriptures that said, Jesus himself and the Bible itself says that there's no difference between uh, male or female, Jew or Greek, that we're all one in Christ, that unlike society that likes to put a label on everybody and lift people up and put people down and try and equal out people by putting someone down and lifting someone else up, that the Bible says that we're all equal because Jesus was lifted up. And we see that societies that have come under um, uh, Christianity or followed godly principles we see that happen. We see uh, women's rights. We look at nations where that doesn't happen and we see, well, anything but women's rights, you know, uh, your property, your possession, um, and all sorts of things that way. Um, but we see that, you know, even our society that, that was going that way, we've really started going the other way. As much as we champion women's rights, it's really under the guise of women's rights, but now we're hurting women with abortion and with quote-unquote different sexual freedoms and other things and, and dress and other things. You know, there's that... Um, uh, there's a cartoon about a scantily clad American woman on the beach and then a woman who's totally covered um, in, uh, in a Muslim country. And you go, well, which society is better? You know, both societies are degrading women. One is making them a sexual object and the other one is doing the same but in a different manner. You know, um, what society is really doing the thing? And I think, you know, they're both deceptive. But I digress. Let's go on. We see that Jews came to faith, Greeks came to faith, and men and women both. Again, that the gospel uh, pays equal attention to both here. So let's go on in, in uh, verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, that's interesting, and gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus, 
And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Uh, it says here, you know, there were Jews who were not persuaded, became envious. The Jews back in the synagogues who weren't believing in this message that Paul was trying to reason with them in the scriptures didn't believe, but they just didn't believe and say, all right, Paul, we'll see you later. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it. You know, grab a donut on the way out. They got envious. And does that not reveal their hearts that they were envious when people came to faith in Jesus? They were listening to the message that Paul had. They, were, they didn't care um, about the people. They only cared about if they had a following or not. And Genesis 4, 3 through 8 talks about, In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desires for you. But you should rule over it. And the very next verse says, Now Cain talked with Abel's brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. That, again, there's this envy that the sacrifice of one was accepted to the Lord, and the sacrifice of the other wasn't accepted to the Lord. And I think it's very similar here that, hey, why is this sacrifice accepted? Let's rise up and come after them and be envious of them. You know, and in their envy, what do they do? It very plainly says that they get some of the evil men from the marketplace. How would you like to be known as an evil man from the marketplace? I don't know. Hey, where can I find some evil men? I'll go over there and make a left and you'll find some evil men. Uh, But they get them to do their dirty work. And to me, that kind of sounds like a political campaign just because it's political season. But how much more? You think of mobs or gang violence or other things where you go find some henchmen to do your bidding because you don't want to get arrested or have your name associated with it, but you want something done. But what do they do? They seek out this guy named Jason. Um, and apparently he has, the church is known to meet in his house. Um, and they expect to find Paul and Silas there. But they don't find Paul and Silas there. So they bring Jason out and they, uh, they mess with him. And I think it's, you know, in a sense, this is reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, Matthew eleven twenty three through 24. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You know, I think of when uh, Lot and his family were in Sodom and God came down to find judgment and the angels went in and the whole town kind of came over to Lot's house to to do wickedness with these uh, angels that showed up and just how judgment was coming on them. And I think in the same way, similar here, the, the gospels come to the city the people find out about it and their wicked hearts reveal and they come here and they try and break it up. They try and do some more wicked to them. Uh, but man, if they had just repented, um, uh, you know, they've actually seen the gospel. If they've repented, how things differently, how different things would be. You know, and I think that these things, again, are just a revelation of their hearts. That when the gospel does come and fruit does come from it, what is our heart towards it? What is our heart towards it? It's very, very quickly revealing. And what do they do? They make a blame, a political crime against Jason. They say the men who have turned the whole world upside down came here. The whole world, you know, they've gone, what, a couple hundred miles uh, circumference from Syria over here, you know, the whole world, really? They're, again, they're, they're, they really do turn the whole world upside down. I think in a sense, that's like God using a donkey, but um, it's prophecy in a sense, because the whole world does get turned upside down. Um, but man, they're, they're trumping up these claims. Look at all this stuff they did. They're magnifying. They're making it sound worse 
than it is. And they say that it's a political crime against Caesar. You know, you couldn't say that you had to pledge allegiance to Caesar. You know, not pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, but pledge allegiance to Caesar. And if you said there was another king, that was insurrection. That was uh, treason. And uh, that's what they're saying these guys did here because they said that, that Jesus was king. They weren't saying elect Jesus. They weren't saying overthrow Caesar. They just said that there is an eternal king here. And they tried to, to, to get on the, the people's political side to get them to attack these uh, men for their spiritual work. And there's a, a commentary, a commentary of this guy called uh, Longenecker, and that's a really good name. But it says, uh, it may be for this reason that Paul avoided the use of kingdom and king in his letters to his converts, uh, lest Gentile imperial authorities misconstrue them to connote opposition to the empire and emperor. That, you know, when we talk about Jesus, maybe Paul was being very wise in the way he, he mentioned him and mentioned uh, the kingdom of God to make it not look like it was trying to be a political takeover. And I think of the video we just watched of our friends in China, where they need to be very careful how they say things, not only for their own safety, but that it's not misconstrued as a political takeover. Same thing here. You know, I'll bow, bow to Jesus any day. And if the government here were to tell me to, to not do that, I would continue to bow to Jesus. But that doesn't mean that I want to overthrow the government, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would love a new administration, don't get me wrong, but that doesn't mean I'm anti-government. Um, and again, you see that today in political things where, um, whether it's in America or other places, where just because you want different people in power doesn't mean that you're anti-government, you know. it's You still like authority, you still like the provisions of the law, but maybe the people in the position aren't going about it properly. And I think that there's a relation here to that. But they make Jason post bond. Hey, they're not here. There's a riot. You got to pay us some money. You know, it lets you free. And, you know, we don't want things to escalate. Um, I think it's more of uh, like you hear about the mob and you get bomb protection or you get protection where you're doing business and maybe a gang or the mob shows up at your door and says, hey, pay us 50% of your profits in, every month so you don't get bombed or you don't get robbed or you don't get, you know, your car destroyed or something. You know, is it really protection? No, it's. Uh, you know, it's a bribery. It's a blackmail. And I think that's the same sort of thing here that, yeah, they had to pay this legal bond uh, to keep the government out of it. You know, because basically the government was blaming Jason and his house for this riot. Was it really their fault? No, it was the Jews who got these evil men there. And, um, and again, nobody wants Roman legion coming down to restore order. You know, their martial law, the SWAT team, riot control. You know, we don't really want that to happen. So let's just take care of this and, and smooth it over. And, uh, and it'll all be over, and you'll just pay us a fine. Uh, let's go on in verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Uh, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And therefore many of them believe, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul of Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who uh, conducted Paul uh, brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. We see that the believers there send Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Again, a night escape. Remember, Paul is let down by the basket. People are trying to hurt him. He couldn't go out through the gates um, uh, in uh, earlier time. 
Um, but we see that they need to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Yeah, these people want to hurt him. Paul's done his business. There's nothing wrong with getting out of here by night. Uh, so they send them away to Berea. Um, they send them to Berea. And I thought I looked it up. Uh, maybe it's somewhere later um, how far away it was. But it was, you know, about 45 miles away, which is a pretty decent time back then. But it says, what did they do when they got there? You know, Paul's custom. Paul's custom. He went to the synagogue. He did the same thing he did in the last city. He's going to go to this city. He's going to go in the synagogue and he's going to reason them with the scriptures. And what does it say? It says that they, they found that they were more fair-minded or noble-minded. Um, and it's interesting that the word is noble-minded. Uh, this idea of belonging to a hereditary class with high social or political status, aristocratic, having or showing fine personal qualities or high moral principles and ideals. That these people here, that they were just more willing to embrace an idea and actually consider it. They didn't just shut it down the moment they heard it. We don't understand it, so it must be wrong. But they really said, okay, let's listen and let's reason this out. And it says two things about them. Number one, that they received the word with all readiness. That when the word came, they were ready to listen. They were ready to study it. They were ready to consider it. That they were open to these things. Um, I think that's wise. And number two, that they searched out the scriptures for themselves. That when they heard these things, they didn't just accept it as gospel truth. They didn't just believe this preacher who just showed up one Sunday. But they took it back and they went in the scriptures and they spent their own time and they got together and they did Bible studies and said, he just mentioned this verse. Is this really true? And they, they considered it for themselves. And I think that from these two things, really, these are two precepts for you and me, two things to, to live our lives by as believers. And number one is that when we come to the word, we come to a teaching, we come to an exhortation. Uh, you know, we watch a video uh, about from missionaries that we're ready to receive what God has for us and that we we're ready to receive it with readiness. You know, think of like a team before a play where the coach has got everyone in the huddle over on the bench. There's a timeout. There's a couple minutes left in the game and they have to get the game plan going. Everyone's ready to receive what they need to do and how they need to do it. Okay, I'm going to go here and make a button hook. Okay, I'm going to go here. We're going to put this guy here. We're going to put that guy there. And everyone knows their part to play. Or like a soldier before a battle. They say, okay, the enemy's over here. We have to go up this hill. You need to bring this munitions. This is the backup. This is the call sign. This is the fallback point where everyone's going to be paying attention and ready uh, and to see what their part is. Or a kid ready to do their chores, right? When you say, kids, come here, do your chores. Uh, I assume that's what happens, right? That when you tell your kids they need to do, maybe not, I haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) Kind of there yet. Uh, Sometimes they like to clean up their Legos, uh, which is very good. Um, but really that this noble mindness and this diligence that they have, what is the end result of it? That when they're presented with the truth, they're presented with the reason of the scriptures that they come to belief. It's not the disbelief. It's not that they find it wrong, but they have full on belief. And I think that's so important that yes, we don't have to check our intellect at the door that we can come to the scripture. And the more we study it, the more we're going to believe it. The more we read it, the more we, we apply it, the more we demonstrate it, the more we experiment with it in a sense, the more we try and try it out uh, and refine it, we say, yeah, this is true. And if I disagree with it, it's probably because I don't understand it or there's something wrong uh, uh, with me. And I think of uh, the Calvary movement per se, where uh, Pastor Chuck Smith started doing uh, verse-by-verse teaching. I'm sure he's not the only one who started doing it, but he's the one that I know of that, that gained a lot of predominance in America. I'm sure people did it for thousands of years, um, but it just probably got lost along the way. Uh, line upon line, precept upon precept, like the scripture said, or expository teaching, and, and many other uh, movements and denominations, in a sense, uh, do it uh, verse by verse. And again, not that I think there's anything wrong with topical. I love certain topical teachings, 
Um, but just the fact that you go through the scriptures, you get to reason through the scriptures. You get to see, well, why is this scripture here? Well, the reason is read a couple verses back. Well, the reason for that is read a couple books back. The reason for that is a couple books back or a couple books ahead. And you get to see the whole picture and not just little snippets here and there and see why is this, the scripture there for there. Um, and just how important it is um, uh, that we know the scriptures and that um, we're able to reason it out with ourselves. And I think even ourselves, as we hear a scripture and as God begins to minister to you something, that even you begin to talk to yourself about it during the week. Or, is this really what the Lord means? That is this really how I'm going to apply this to my life? Is this really how this plays out? But again, we see that the result from this noble-mindedness and uh, reasoning the scriptures is that Jews believe. That people have been grown up in the faith and been cultured in the faith and been in the synagogue probably their whole lives. Oh, wow, this makes a lot of sense. This is exactly what we were looking forward to. Um, and they came to faith by it. And then also we see that more Greeks were believed. And they too, the same thing like we talked about before. Again, same results. Reason through the scriptures. Jews believe, Greeks believe. And also a third point again, that there's more prominent women. That, that Luke again says, hey, this is again very important that we bring up that more prominent women um, are doing that. And again, it's something to be said about that. Again, like we said, uh, very hard for a woman to get ahead or gain respect in a society and probably have to work very hard uh, and to be in power to then believe in something like this. Someone who maybe probably feels like they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, so to speak, uh, to come to faith. And I think of, you know, not to be political, but I think of someone like Carly Fiorina in this race, you know, here and her there, but that she, uh, she was a CEO of a company. She was a presidential contender. But for when I read and heard, she has genuine faith that when uh, uh, she was going through things and her family was going through things, she said that she turned to Jesus. And now I don't, I don't know her. I don't know the facts of it, but you know, to even say that and, and be about that is a pretty big deal. You know, I know some powerful women in the world and, and they're not believers and they're great people, but so to speak, but they're not believers. But for someone to be in that position and that authority, say, yeah, I turn to Jesus and I, I, I'm through this and I'm where I am today because of my faith. Um, you know, I think of a lady, I had the honor of being part of a funeral for someone in her family recently, uh, the end of last year. She's very powerful in government and military and security, but her faith is very evident. It's very evident that she's a believer. The way, just her demeanor, the way she talks, the things she shared. Uh, but she's very high up and very powerful. And I think that that's very honorable and respectable. And again, not to elevate one group above another group, but I think you know you, you consider someone again like the context of scripture as we consider why versus where it is. We consider people where they are and what they had to do to get to where they are based on uh, the situations that they're in, and then to still have such evident faith and such outspoken faith. I think that's very honorable. And something to be commended and called out like Luke does here several times. But we see again, you know, we're talking about being provoked that the Jews get wind of this that's, that's going on. That Paul and Silas have moved down the road to Berea. And again, I said it's about 45 miles away from a quick look at a map. And that's quite a distance back then. You know, 45 miles, maybe that's how far you drive to work. I don't know. But um, 45 miles on foot or hoof or, or a boat is, is a little bit of time. And it's not quite far enough to escape the jealousy of the Jews. Maybe they thought, all right, go to Berea. It's far enough away. You'll be fine. You just, you know, they're not going to follow you there. <laughs> uh, they followed them there. You know, it says that they came there also and they stirred up the crowds. So they started similar riots as they did uh, previously. And again, if you haven't checked it out, listen to that message from uh, the guy from uh, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association from the 2015 East Coast Pastors Conference. And just these things that go on and these people that go on and make a living out of inciting riots and going through um, and around. 
But people love stirring up trouble, and I think it's usually when they have nothing better to do. We read scriptures later about uh, uh, widows who don't get married and aren't doing the things of the Lord where they end up being busybodies and get in everyone's business. And I think that that's all of us. If, if we don't have something good to do, what's that old saying? You know, idle hands are a devil's playground, so to speak. But, you know, if, you, if you're not actively doing something good, it's very easy to get involved um, in something wrong here. But these guys were obsessed. They were obsessed that Paul and Silas and the gospel were being successful. And again, I don't know why they were so bothered by it, but I think it's because they had something that they didn't possess. They were obsessed because they didn't possess. They didn't have the power that the gospel had in their lives. They wanted power and authority, um, but they missed the boat. They missed the boat on that one. So what do they do? They send Paul away. And where do they send Paul away to? They put him in a boat and stick him in the ocean. Paul, everywhere we send you on land, you're getting in trouble. You're getting beat up. There's a riot. People are getting arrested. People are getting fined. Just get in the boat. We'll figure it out later. So they put him in a boat, and um, uh, Timothy and Silas stay back for a little while. But as Paul's on the boat, when he has nowhere left to go, they figure out, all right, let's go to Athens and... uh, uh, they asked for Silas and Timothy to meet him there. Let's go on. Let's read a few more verses in our time together today. Uh, in Acts uh, 17, verse 16, it says, Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And when he saw that the city was given over to idols, uh, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and said, What does this babbler want to say? And others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know that this new doctrine, uh, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And Paul's waiting for them. He's observing the city. Um, I think of times uh, when some friends were going down to New York City to do missions work, uh, not missions work, plant a church. Um, I remember going down to the city by myself a couple of times and just walking about and going about. I thought, Lord, you know, I was considering whether I, uh, God was calling me to go down there or not. And I went down there and I was walking around, spent some time with the Lord. Uh, when before we moved down here, when I was looking for work and and staying from place to place, you know, I'd walk around Bethesda, I walked around D.C., just kind of considering and observing and and uh, seeking God for uh, uh, direction. But it says here that as Paul um, was doing that, uh, that he was provoked, that his spirit within him was provoked. It wasn't this fleshly provocation. Oh, I can't believe they're doing this. What are they doing? Let's let's go pick it. But man, everyone's into idolatry. This whole city is given over to idolatry and it provoked him. And that word is to make sharp or sharpen, to stimulate, to spur on, to irritate, provoke, cause to anger, uh, to despise, uh, to make angry, to exasperate. You know, that he was truly exasperated on the inside. In a sense, um, we think of, you know, we talk about God being a jealous God for, for us, where he's jealous over us in the sense of, man, he sees us caught up in idolatry, caught up in stuff that's just destroying us. It, it, in a sense, provokes God um, uh, to come after us and, and to free us from these things. And we see that in Paul, too, that Paul couldn't wait. Paul's waiting for them to show up. He's walking around the city. He sees them in idolatry. What does he do? Well, he does his custom again. He goes to the synagogue. But this time by himself, he couldn't wait. He had to go do it. And he begins to reason with them about the scriptures. And I think in a sense that as he's seeing the city given over to idolatry, it's interesting. He still goes to the synagogue first. I think that maybe that says that 
this idolatry had creeped into the synagogue here. That the Jewish life wasn't what it was supposed to be even in the city. They began to reason with them. Yes, as a Jew, come to faith in your Messiah. But also that, man, there's probably some idolatry going on and mixed in here. And it says also that um, anyone who happened to be in the market, <laughs> he's walking down the street, he sees some guy buying Greek apples or whatever, he <laughs> begins to talk to the guy. He sees someone else over here, begins to talk to them and just strike up a conversation with everyone. I think that there's definitely a time and a place for that, especially if you feel provoked uh, by the Lord to do it. You're out somewhere and you just feel this, oh man, I need to do this. I need to take care of this. Um, you should do it. But they were in a very philosophic culture. Uh, we're not going to get into the, the different types, but that everyone was about thinking and higher thought and considering the reasons for life and the purposes for life amidst this idolatry, although they never really got to a point, as it says here, that they had these circular conversations. Um, you know, I was into philosophy for a little while in college when I was seeking the truth. You know, I like to have philosophical conversations and, and think about things and talk about things. And I think that sometimes those things can be fun. But it says here that the end of it was that they just liked to, to tell things, tell new things and hear new things. They never came to an answer. They never came to a reason. As we'll see later, they said, oh, thanks for sharing with us today, Paul. Would you come back another time? I'd like to hear more about it. That it was just some exercise in thinking and talking with them that really it was, it was vanity. It was puffed up. Um, it was not truly reasoning, not truly coming to conclusions. And we'll find that a lot in, in worldly philosophy, that it's just circular, it just Go around, and while you're going around pretending to be, you know, maybe you don't realize you're pretending, but you're pretending to be intellectual and smart and wise. It's just d jumping around the fact that you're lost, and you're rationalizing your sin, and you don't want to deal with the fact that you're sinful. So you go around and make up, oh, well, what if there's super God, and what if there's a God bigger than God, and super God, and super, super, super God? This is stuff I remember learning in college, <laughs> which is probably why I didn't finish college, because it was pointless. But... <laughs> But, um, you know, that they, they continued and they weren't truly reasoning and coming to conclusions like who? The Bereans, who came with readiness and came ready uh, to search the scriptures out themselves. And again, I've had a lot of fun circular conversations. Sometimes it's fun, especially with college-age kids. <laughs> they love to have these conversations and it's fun. But if we're, if we're doing this all the time with our pattern of our life and we never come to a conclusion... Uh, we need to watch out. And I think especially as believers, if we just constantly walk through the scriptures, whether it's expository, verse by verse, or topical, and we never come to a conclusion, how does this affect my life? Where is God bringing me with the scripture? What does God want to do with my life in the scripture? I think we end up in the same circular boat. And, you know, that's usually a drain that goes in a circle around and around and, and uh, just gets washed out. But next week, I definitely don't have time to fit it today, and I didn't want to rush it into today's uh, message. We're going to look at the Areopagus, and that word is Greek, and it really means Mars Hill. Mars Hill, that Ares was the god Mars, the god of war, and there's this hill, and this is where they all met. This is one of the hills in, in, in the area, and this is where all the philosophers met and hung out. You know, Think of it like uh, maybe a website today where a lot of people hang out. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe it's the mall. Maybe it's um, Twitter. Maybe it's, I don't know. Um, but this is where they all hung out and they would get together and they would have these conversations and think and talk and just hang out all day and, uh, be hippies and not get a job and just talk all day. I don't know. Uh, but that's where we're going to pick it up. And it's a very, uh, famous, uh, area of scripture. But as we close here, again, we saw that Jews and Gentiles and prominent women were provoked to the faith that as Paul reasoned with them, it provoked something in them that they didn't just have that circular reasoning but that they came to faith, that they believed what they heard because it made sense. We saw that unbelievers were also provoked to jealousy, that these people who did not believe and did not have 
uh, the authority over the people that they wanted to anymore. They were provoked to jealousy. And from there, they hired people to provoke the crowds to do the dirty work to get rid of Paul and Silas and these guys. And we see at the end here that Paul's spirit was provoked by a city given over to idolatry. And, and I pray that that would be our hearts, that God would provoke in us a desire to see people come to know him. That when we do see wickedness, like yesterday I was putting tires on Ashley's car at the service station. They had the news going and just the news story after news story. I don't think I was provoked like Paul. I was provoked like, come on, like this is ridiculous. Like how horrible are these things? And it's just everyday news. Uh, but man, that we would be provoked in our spirits um, to step out and reach others uh, for the gospel. Amen. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for the opportunity to come together with it. I pray that, God, if we weren't ready to begin with, that, God, we would be ready now to uh, search it out and seek it out and and uh, and live it out. God, that you would begin to provoke in us and provoke in others. I know that you're working in, in those that we work with, that as they look on at our lives, they uh, they have questions and they wonder and they're putting us to the test that, God, Lord, you would uh, open up doors for us to share with them and, and provoke them to faith in a good way, not in a, in a derogatory way or in an antagonistic way, but in a, in a good way, in a good antagonizing way. I say, hey, this is reality. This is scripture. Come to a conclusion. Come to a conclusion because no conclusion is, is, uh, is, is rejection. And God, we pray that you would do these works by your spirit, that God, you would uh, cover us and keep us. And we pray that as Easter comes, we would be mindful of you. And uh, we thank you for the cross and your resurrection, that you're not just a martyr, but that, God, you rose again to free us. And we ask, uh, again, your blessings on Nate and Laura and Adiel and the, the students in China. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.